Today, we're going to take a look at an iconic scene of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This scene comes in the midst of Jesus showing his authority over all things in Matthew chapter 8. And it's one of the most magnificent demonstrations of that authority. So let's all stand together now. Sorry for the great up and down there. Let's stand together and read Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. Please be seated and let's pray. Father, we are hungry for your word this morning. We are hungry for more of you. We pray for a greater knowledge of your word, a greater knowledge of you, therefore. And Spirit, we pray that you would speak directly to our hearts and to our minds, molding and conforming us to the image of Christ by your word. Where our lives don't line up with your word, we pray that we would kill those sins and align with you and repent. Lord, where our lives do line up with your word, we pray that you would encourage us by your spirit. So now we just humbly ask that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's recap and catch up a little bit from chapter 8. Jesus has come down from the side of the hill, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, and he immediately started healing people. That's relevant here. You have to remember Jesus immediately started doing amazing things. First, he healed a leper, then a centurion's servant, and finally, his disciple Peter's mother-in-law. Last week, we looked at verses 18 through 22, which was a bit of a break in the action. Jesus had just called his disciples to prepare a boat to go over to the other side of the lake when two men, two would-be disciples, approached him. One of them was over-eager in his promise to follow Jesus. You remember that was the scribe. The scribe had not counted the cost of discipleship. The other was under-eager to follow Jesus. He wanted to take time to delay his discipleship. He did not heed the call Jesus said to that last man, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And now in verse 23, we read this. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Notice that? At first glance, verse 23 seems inconsequential, like a little bit of setting. But it's not a coincidence that it occurs right after Jesus called that second man to follow him. In fact... Jesus didn't own a boat, right? So it's not his boat to walk into first like a captain. It's probably one of Peter's boats because he was a local fisherman and who seemed pretty successful. And remember, Jesus had already told the disciples to prepare a boat. And that's what they've been doing the whole time he's been talking to these two men. So 
Wouldn't the boat already be prepared? Wouldn't they already be in the boat? But Matthew purposely puts this sentence here for us to notice that Jesus' disciples follow him. Jesus' disciples follow him. One thing to remember throughout this small passage is that most of Jesus' disciples are fishermen, at least a good chunk of them. They were professional fishermen who fished on this lake, the Sea of Galilee. But a carpenter's son enters the boat first, taking the place of authority and even ownership. And there's a deference that the disciples pay here to Jesus. He is in charge and they follow him. He is Lord, they are his followers. Now let's not make the mistake of thinking that anytime Matthew uses the word follow, that he's talking about discipleship. But it seems like an obvious allusion to the previous verse. Those who get into the boat with Jesus are willing to go where he takes them. And this passage as a whole has a lot to tell us about discipleship. The men who get into the boat with Jesus will be changed by the time they get to their destination. At least a significant part of their mind and their hearts will be changed. It's a significant boat ride. But it's an incredibly short account here in Matthew. Matthew uses very few words and he tells us a lot with those few words. They're powerful and intentional. The rest of the passage, the rest of the boat ride, is only four verses long. But a lot unfolds that reveals to us many helpful things about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and more importantly, what sort of man Jesus is. This passage is all about the power and divinity of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. What does it mean to be a disciple of the God-man, Jesus Christ? Matthew helps us answer that question as he shows us two sorts of fear that Jesus' disciples display. Two sorts of fear in this short scene that give us an idea of how their discipleship is being formed by Jesus and how we can be better disciples too. The first fear is a faithless fear. Let's reread verses 24 and 25. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Notice first that Matthew tells us, the audience, to behold. When he does this throughout his gospel, imagine he's trying to get your attention. He puts his hand on your shoulder and points at something. And in this case, you're overlooking the Sea of Galilee and you see a great storm forming above. This large lake was prone to sudden storms because of how it was situated geographically. It sits 600 feet below sea level and is surrounded by large hills. It's actually the second lowest freshwater lake in the world. Warm air from the lake meets cold air coming over those large hills, and every time it does that, you've got yourself a storm, right? The lake itself is really interesting. 
It's not a very wide lake, but it's shockingly deep, which means the waves could be huge, as big as 20 feet. And that's what's happening here. It was really common for storms to just suddenly appear, and they could be violent and disastrous. So put yourself in the boat. Put yourself right in the boat for a second. It's not a small little canoe that only sits three people. It's not that, but it's not a yacht either. It's a large boat that can sit 12 to 14 people. Some speculate that's the reason Jesus limited his number of close disciples for boat rides, among many other things. It's a normal commercial fishing boat. It's wide, but it's not very deep. It has a sail and it can move pretty quickly, especially when everyone is rowing. So those are the two ways it moves, rowing, sail. Everything starts out great. You're in the hands of, remember, you're sitting in the boat. You're in the hands of several professional fishermen who fish this lake every day. They know what they're doing. It's probably evening time. It's dark outside. Jesus falls asleep because he's had a long day. And while you're going along, the wind starts to pick up and the water starts to get a little bit choppy, but no big deal. These are experienced fishermen, right? They've got this. But then as you go along, the waves start to get bigger and Peter and Andrew and James and John, all four fishermen, all, all these experienced fishermen, they, they start to look a little bit worried. And all of a sudden, the waves are getting huge. And this is the worst storm these professionals have ever experienced. In fact, let's talk about this weird storm. Matthew's account of this famous short story is, is the shortest account in the scriptures. Both Mark and Luke include the story in their gospels. And every word that Matthew chooses is important. We've already said that. So unlike Mark and Luke, who use the common Greek word for storm in their gospel, Matthew uses a word that only means storm in this one place in the whole Bible. Everywhere else, the word means earthquake. In fact, it means a supernatural earthquake. And I find that very interesting. Why does Matthew use that specific word here? Everywhere else, the word occurs in the New Testament. It has to do with the supernatural, with God moving or with judgment. So Jesus will use the word when he talks about judgment and the end times in Matthew 24. And it's used after Jesus dies in Matthew 27. And then again, after he rises from the grave in Matthew 28. It doesn't occur in any of the other gospels, only in Matthew. And the only other occurrences of this specific word are in the book of Revelation. Again, judgment. So a better translation of Matthew 8.24 here would be something like, there arose a great shaking of the sea. Now, of course, it was a storm. We're still talking about a storm. The other Gospels confirm that, and Matthew wants to convey that too when he mentions the great winds and the waves. But there's something not right about this storm. If we do a little bit of a word study, we see that Matthew wants us to understand that, that there's something going on here. The creation is actually revolting. And several commentators interpret this storm as a demonic attack, actually, against Jesus because of the connotation of the word that Matthew uses here and how it exists 
in other parts of the scriptures. So that, remember, you're sitting in the boat. That's what you're seeing right now. Huge waves, huge winds. It's really eerie and weird and dangerous. And the boat is filling up fast. The disciples take the sail down and they throw you a bucket and they make you bail out any water that starts to get into the boat. But now the waves are crashing over the boat and everything is out of hand. No one can fix the problem. You can't keep up with the water. All the professionals are freaking out. And everyone, everyone, even the professionals, turn to Jesus who's still asleep. And at this point, you're convinced you're going to die. That's how it feels to be in this boat. What do you do? You probably say something like what the disciples say in Mark's account of this story when he says that the disciples yelled to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew only records three words in the original Greek that our ESV renders as six for clarity. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. In the Greek is really a short sentence that you could yell very quickly. It's something like, Lord, save, we perish. And we perish is one word in Greek. So at face value, that seems like a faith-filled response, right? Jesus can help us in our storms, right? But before Jesus rebukes the storms, he rebukes the apostles, the disciples. As Charles Spurgeon said of this passage, he spoke to the men first, for they were the most difficult to deal with. Wind and sea could be rebuked afterward. There's something not right about their response to the storm. Jesus rebukes them strongly. Why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Which seems like an odd question. Can't Jesus look around and see why they're afraid? They're in the middle of a crazy, violent storm, and the boat is about to sink, and all of the successful professionals are freaking out. It seems like their fear is warranted here, doesn't it? But according to Jesus... Their fear is the result of a deficiency in faith. So here's an important question that we have to understand about this passage. We have to answer this question. In what way was their faith little? Should they have just trusted harder in their God-given abilities? Remember, these are professional fishermen, right? They should know how to handle a storm on the sea that they fish every day. So maybe the answer of greater faith was that they really needed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and try really hard, even even harder than they were right now. Maybe their lack of faith was a lack of faith in themselves. What do you think? No, probably not. Okay, so the problem was that they should have woken up Jesus sooner, right? Maybe they shouldn't have trusted their own sailing abilities at all. Maybe they should have thrown out any God-given talent and skill they had and, and handed the sailing responsibilities over to Jesus at the beginning. Maybe they should have just let Jesus take the wheel. 
Would that have been greater faith? Well, it seems like Jesus needed a nap. And God has created each of us with talents and gifts to be used for him, including taking him across the lake in a boat. So once again, that's not the issue. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for lack of faith in themselves, and he doesn't rebuke them for not waking him up sooner. He rebukes them because... They had given into the thought that even though they were with Jesus, they were going to die. As a friend said this week in talking about this passage, the issue wasn't that they woke up Jesus. It was that they really believed that Jesus, along with everyone else in that boat, would perish. As if creation could stamp out the Creator... They had little faith because they thought little of Jesus. Let me say that again. Their little faith was because they had little faith in Jesus. They didn't understand what sort of man was in the boat with them. But by, the t- by, by this time, they should have understood more. They should have connected more dots. Jesus has been demonstrating his authority for them. He taught them with divine authority in the Sermon on the Mount. He reinterpreted the law. He's done many wonderful miracles. He's healed many people, including a centurion's servant who wasn't even physically present when Jesus healed him. Yet they think that all of that, all of Jesus' ministry and all of their lives would end in a moment here on the water. But according to John 10, nobody takes Jesus' life from him. He lays it down willingly. And that goes for nature, too. Now, let's not knock the disciples too much here, right? Remember that feeling you had sitting in the boat? You probably would have said the same thing. In the midst of terrible trials and suffering, it's difficult to remember that Jesus is the king of the universe, And in control of all things. It's difficult to remember that prayer actually works and fear is not necessary. The response of great faith in this moment on the water wasn't to let Jesus keep sleeping or to wake him up earlier. It's to shorten the three-word prayer that the disciples offer down to two words. Jesus, save. Do you believe that Jesus has the ability to save you? Do you believe that Jesus has the authority and is powerful enough to deliver you? Now, that doesn't mean we we shouldn't pour out our hearts to God with great emotion, especially when we feel fear. And it doesn't mean that we are sinning if we get afraid. But it does mean that in the face of great fear, the right response is a greater faith in Jesus. Amen? In the face of great fear, the right response is faith in Jesus. Which brings us to the second fear on display in this passage. Godly fear. Why is Jesus able to sleep in the middle of this horrible storm? I mean, this storm is so bad that professional fishermen turn to a carpenter's son to save them. 
course, Jesus is probably really tired. He's had a long few days, and he needs some sleep. But he also has complete knowledge about who he is. He's the son of God. He's the agent of creation, the word tells us. No storm can take him out. Well, he's woken up anyway. And after rebuking the disciples, he does something pretty amazing. It says, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, I know most of us have heard this story many times, but try to hear it with fresh ears right now. Jesus rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and all of a sudden there was a great calm. Remember, you're still sitting in the boat. Use your imagination. You have your bucket in your hand. Jesus gets up from his nap and gives the storm a stern talking to, and all of a sudden it stops. The waves stop crashing, the winds stop howling, the, wind, the sun comes out, and, and everything is perfectly calm in a moment immediately. You just witness something you can't explain. You just saw a man talk to a storm, and it listened. With a word, this guy put nature in its place. What do you do now? Did the disciples know that when they asked Jesus for salvation, that he would literally tell the storm to stop, and it would? I think I would stare slack-jawed at Jesus for quite some time. Their response here is understandable. Matthew tells us, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? In fact, the key verse of this whole passage is verse 27, and that question, What sort of man is this that even wind and sea obey him? It's an incredibly important question. Discipleship begins with that question. Salvation is dependent upon how we answer what sort of man is this. It's starting to click for the disciples. They realize that Jesus is more than meets the eye. He's not just a normal man. He's not just like them. He's not just a good teacher who understands his Bible really well. He's not even just a miraculous healer that can do things they can't explain. He's no mere magician. You have to understand that this kind of power to stop a storm was only reserved for God in the Old Testament. In the ancient world, the sea and the winds stood for the forces of chaos. They were representative of what is unknown and uncontrollable. But the Old Testament presents God as someone who even tells the sea what to do. Genesis 1 significantly starts with the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. But God molds and shapes it. He brings order out of chaos. He gathers the waters and he places them where he wants them to be. In the book of Job, God rebukes Job for thinking that he can pass judgment on his situation like God. 
But God responds to Job strongly. Listen to these words from Job 38. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. It's one long question among many other questions God asks Job and they all have the same answer. Who did this? God. God did this. He put the waters in their place. He set a boundary for the waves. Now listen to Psalm 65, 5 through 8, a psalm of praise that David wrote. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell in the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. God is worthy of praise because he stills the roaring seas just as he stops the tumult of the people. And he does so in order that we would be in awe of him. Oh, but there's a lot more. Listen to Psalm 104, 5 through 7. He set the earth on its foundation so that that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountain. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Talking about the oceans. Here God rebukes the waters, and they listen. Sound familiar? These are only a few examples of God putting the oceans and the seas in their place in the Old Testament Psalm 106, Isaiah 50, the whole book of Jonah, Nahum 1, all of these places and more talk about God being in control of the waters. God masters the forces of evil and chaos and he puts them in their place. Amen? So when we see Jesus stand up out of his seat and rebuke the sea, we should marvel with the disciples. Here stands the God-man who stops the winds and the sea and rebukes the forces of evil and brings to order that which is chaotic. He is the center of all things. He established the boundaries of the deep. He stills the roaring of the seas just as he stops the tumults of his people. He rebukes the water and it listens. Hallelujah. In short, Jesus tells the sea and the wind what to do, and only God can do that. Jesus is no mere man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. This is God who instructs creation with a word, and it listens. Do we marvel at Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man? Do we fear him as God? The disciples failed to realize the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's where their faith was too small. Do we make the same mistake? Do we limit Jesus in our minds 
Or is he actually God to us? You know, there have been many interpretations of this short story. One church father saw it as a metaphor for the church and that Jesus protects the church. Others have seen it as a retelling of the Jonah story where Jesus is triumphant and and reverses Jonah's mistakes. Still more modern interpreters have understood this story as less supernatural. The point, they say, is not that Jesus could actually still waters and winds, but that Jesus stills the storms of our lives by bringing us peace. Now, these interpretations can be helpful in in understanding certain parts of the point of the story. Just as the disciples were dependent on Jesus in the storm, so the church is. Where Jonah failed to follow God, Jesus reverses his failings. And it's true that Jesus does still the storms of our lives and gives us peace. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that the Prince of Peace offers himself to us, even in the midst of our suffering. That we can have the peace that passes all understanding. That our storms, our suffering, our trials, the judgment we face is nothing in comparison with Jesus Christ. All of that's true. But none of these interpretations are the real point, the real point of the passage. All of them fall short of giving us the real primary meaning. The real meaning is found in that question in verse 27, in the wrestling that the disciples undertake from here on out about the person of Jesus Christ. How do you answer that question? What sort of man is this? Jesus is the sort of man that is also divine. Jesus is God. He is man in every way in which it means to be a man, and he is God in every way in which it means to be God. He is not less God because he took on flesh, and he is not less of a man because he's God. The same Jesus who is too tired to care about the storm is also the God who divides the waters from waters and sets up boundaries for the waves and tells them, to go back to where they should be. What sort of man is this? This is the sort of man that is incomparable with anybody else. But he's also the sort of man that can sympathize with all of our weaknesses and was tempted in every way in which we were. He's the sort of man who dies on a Roman cross in the place of sinners. But he's also the sort of man who conquers death and rises from the grave. Praise the Lord. He is the sort of man who calls his disciples to trust in him and exercise greater faith in him. How's your faith today? The mistake of the disciple was that they didn't quite grasp the sort of man Jesus was. So, do you? Do you believe that Jesus is God? And that Jesus is king? that he is creator and sustainer of the universe, that he can not just handle your problems and save you from your disasters, but forgive you of your sins and unite you to God? Did the disciples understand that the man that they were following into the boat was God? 
And by the time the boat ride was over, many hearts and minds were changed in that direction. Does the story do the same for us? May the Lord grant us a greater vision of who Jesus Christ is in his divinity, in his rule, and in his sovereignty. Amen? May we remember that throughout our week, that the fear that we are tempted to feel in the midst of our lives is nothing in comparison with the power and control of Jesus Christ over all things. Amen? This is going to be a long boat ride for us. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of Matthew for the rest of the summer and return to it this fall as the disciples arrive on the other side of the lake. We're going to study through the book of Micah, where God's power and authority are also on clear display. That book is all about judgment and forgiveness and the two going together. And I'm really excited to go through it with you. But as for today, Jesus is Lord of all things. Amen? He is not only Lord of all creation, but Lord of my individual life. Amen? Let's respond to him in prayer and praise. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that this morning. That you are king, that you are God. You are God alone. And we praise you. Lord, often we look around us and we forget that you are king, that you are God, and that you are in control of all things. And therefore, we give in to fear. We have little faith, Lord. Give us greater faith. Help us to trust you. To desire to serve you and to remember you throughout our week. How wonderful and great you are. In Jesus' name, amen.